the book Making Your Way, Vlerik authors Marion de Bruyne and Kathleen de Stobelair unravel 15 persistent myths about the path to success and finding happiness in life and work. They share their personal experiences, sparkling testimonials and relevant scientific knowledge. They tackle questions like, is the perfect job out there? How do you define success? Does everything have to be planned out, preferably before your 30s? And what about the so-called work-life balance? Hi, my name is Mathieu van den Boogaert and welcome back to the third part of the Making Your Way book podcast. If you would summarize the book to somebody in a kind of pitch, how would you describe the book, Marion? Well, the core message of, of the book, and I must confess this coincides with the core mantra of, of, of Flerick Business School, is live, learn, leap. Live your dreams, learn continuously, and, and leap with confidence. Um, and so with those messages, what we want to do is also break through some of the most common myths that we see that people still have about what success in work and life should look like and myths that often hold them back. And so uh, we, we want people to explore their full potential by breaking through some of those myths. Yeah. And, and in a way, uh, I think it's also important that it's written now, uh, since if you look at, at society, it, it's not the same as, as 20, 30 years ago. Uh, we have much more diversity, single parent families, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if we look at how uh, many people still conceive a career, it's still in a, a rather traditional way. And, and what we also want to show with this book is uh, there's many different avenues that you can take, side roads that you can take. And uh, and that's the message we, we want to give. And I think in that sense, it's also the right time to give that message. Indeed, to break through some of the stereotypes as well that still exist about uh, what it means to making your way and how you should do that. Um, also stereotypes about what it means to take the lead and 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 leadership. Um, and I think in this day and age, you know, we need a, a different view uh, on careers as being a steady climb up the ladder. We need a different view on leadership as being, you know, the the, the top down visionary uh, visionary approach. And those are some of the myths that. Uh, uh, that we dispel. Yeah. Is that an impression you have that many youngsters or even seasoned leaders think it's a straightforward path? I, I indeed st think that that is the expectation that, that we still have. I mean, just the word career uh, just brings up that image as, you know, climbing the ladder and a steady, steadily climbing the ladder. However, you know, what we've seen in speaking to so many people is that um, that is often not reality and and even that that is okay and sometimes making, you know, uh, sideways moves or even taking a step back for many people actually was the launch pad for, you know, bigger moves, bigger moves forward. Um, and so it, it's not only that this image of a steadily upward uh, trajectory is, is not reality. It may not even be, you know, the core path to success. If we think about what, you know, what is it that we learn about the most, you know, often it's those things that we don't immediately succeed at um, one of one of the studies that we that we uh, that we cite in in the book, you know, shares 
um, a comparison between young scientists that either achieve to get a very important grant and so really start a career with, you know, with, uh, with an advantage versus a group of young scientists who barely but doesn't succeed in getting that grant. And when you compare those two groups, what happens after that, those that really started with a setback, not getting this important grant, you quite a lot of them, you know, stop their academic career and, and stop being a scientist. But those that persist actually, in the end, make better work and make more impactful uh, work. And so that study, in fact, shows what we often shout that, you know, um, uh, you know, success is born out of failure or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, but that indeed seems to be seems to be a reality. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think also rationally, people do know I, I'm at the, the steering wheel of my career. Uh, there, you can also fill a lot of bookshelves with books written about uh, be proactive uh, in your career. But what you also notice, if you look at the numbers, that uh, many of us, uh, we still prefer that, that uh, career path. You graduate, you pick a job, and then you stay in that job, preferably for a long time. You take some steps, preferably hierarchical steps. So rationally, we know that this might not uh, be the only path of uh, success. It can be a path. Uh, but but um, we do notice that people limit themselves sometimes to that path. And uh, that's actually what we want to do, is break some of these myths and show, hey, there's many different ways in which you can be uh, successful and, and happy in, in a career and life, uh, by extension. Myth number 10, you need to play the game. We already mentioned the aspect of emodiversity. But what do you do, Kathleen, when your manager has a dark, triad personality? Um, first of all, I think uh, both for Marion and for myself, this chapter uh, was the most difficult one. I think it's also one of the chapters uh, we wrote mm -hmm. uh, the last. But indeed, imagine that uh, you have um, a supervisor or a colleague, for that, that matter, uh, that... that um, is not a political animal, but I would say that uses those politics uh, for uh, uh, not so positive reasons uh, to maybe create visibility for themselves, to undermine you or whatever. Um, I think there's a couple of things you can do. You could have a very direct approach, and then we, we know people who voice or who engage in whistleblowing. But I also want to make people alert to a second approach, uh, a more indirect approach. And that's really about creating transparency. Uh, because it's very hard uh, to, to engage. It's often things that happen under the radar. And if you think of processes of how can I get it on the radar and create that transparency indirectly. And, and what I'm talking about is, uh, for example, installing a four eyes principle. Uh, if it's only you and that person, well, uh, it often will remain under the radar. But maybe invite someone else in the meeting uh, that, that it also becomes clear for the people around. Or if you know this person is going to take credit for something I did, uh, why not uh, uh, put other people in CC uh, when you send an email with, with the things you did or, or ask feedback? So I think there's also a more indirect way and often I also notice that this is a much more positive way 
to deal uh, with a boss like that. But of course, there's always this point as well, I guess, where your values get corrupted. And I once heard a colleague of mine, I think it was Kundavetink, who said, run for us to run. <laughs> so I can imagine that when you, you uh, that's also an option, I think, if you also notice that the entire system around that person is corrupted, uh, it might be difficult for you as an individual uh, to, to, to really do something. Uh, and so maybe that's a, then the moment where you need to run. But if you love the organization, uh, then you might actually want to take one of these other approaches. One of the most interesting questions in the book, there are many interesting questions, of course, but for me it was, why is it so hard for talented women to reach the top? And at the same time, or why is it so easy for incompetent men, Marion? Well, it's a million-dollar question, obviously, uh, uh, Mathieu. But indeed, if we if we look at the numbers of the percentage of female CEOs, the percentage of female political leaders, whatever different areas that you look at and you search for female leadership at, at the top, it, you know, it is uh, still you know quite small, quite small numbers, and so. Um, and I think one of one of the causes, and, and there are many, is that we are not good at recognizing leadership potential. And that is because we still have a stereotypical way um, uh, of looking at leadership and a, and a stereotypical image of what leadership is about. And so um, we think of leaders as being extrovert, being confident, being charismatic, uh, being visionary, and you know having you know uh, bravoure. Um, and so when we see those characteristics, we tend to think, ah, well, this is a person with leadership potential. This is a charismatic, self-confident, extrovert person. Um, but the reality is that you know also non-charismatic, introverted, um, you know, not so self-confident, doubting people can have equally great leadership potential. Um, but we, you know, um, we, we think that confidence equals competence, which is not the case. Um, and, and that actually, um, you know, leads to the fact that we mistake uh, mistakenly do not see leadership leadership potential and that you know one of the studies that we that we cite indeed asks this question you know um reverses the question of why are there not that many women at the top you know why are there you know so many men at the top you know who maybe have less uh, less leadership potential or you know put it bluntly why are there incompetent men at at the top and 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 the answer and this is coming from Harvard Business Review um, uh, that is stated is it's because we mistake confidence for competence Myth number 11, you're either a natural born leader or just not meant to be one. Um, in the book you mentioned, fear is always there to greet us. Um, Marion, how can you overcome this fear, this inner voice? One of the things that I have learned the hard way is that maybe we should not even 
try to overcome this fear, this fear that will always come with doing something that is new to you, doing something that feels like a challenge, doing something that you're uncertain about, you know, how you pull it off or how you do it. Whenever we take those steps or those risks when we don't know when that the outcome is uncertain, fear indeed will be there to greet us. Um, but I think we should embrace that fear and not even try to overcome it and just accept it. Accept that indeed this is part this is part of it. And actually maybe having positive effects as well. I know for myself, if I would not have, you know, a continuous voice in my head criticizing myself and, you know, giving me self-doubts, probably I would go too much to the other side. I would become too arrogant, too self-confident. And so that inner voice is actually keeping me from, you know, going too much to the other extreme. Um, and th this is something that I, that I had to learn uh, over time as well through coaching um, to, to look at, you know, the, the doubts and, and the fears as a positive driving force, actually, because they make me think harder. They make me work a little harder, probably. Um, they make me consider more alternatives before, before coming to uh, a conclusion or decision. They make me ask more advice to people. And all of that is, in fact, positive. It has a positive, positive impact. So what I've come to learn is that, you know, we might not always need to overcome those fears as long as they are not paralyzing us. And for you, Kathleen, do you have that inner voice? Yes, I've always had it. And I, uh, I would be worried if I, I wouldn't have it, to be honest. Um, what has always worked for me um, when I had fear, and we actually also know from research that this is a good way to cope with fear, is to prepare uh, and to think about what is the, the first step I can take um, in the sense that fear is a very paralyzing emotion. Uh, we know that, uh, that people just paralyze. And so when, when you are also dealing with people who are afraid of something, just help them take that first step. It's a little bit like, like what a dentist does. Uh, you're often there with a little bit of fear, I would say, uh, most people, I think. But what they do is they are very clear. They walk you through the procedure. They prepare you for what's about to come. Uh, and, and I think that has always helped, helped me when, when having fear. It's have a plan, uh, have a preparation, and just take the first step. So even when then you don't feel confident about yourself, there's still this process that you can uh, trust and rely on. Another $1 million question is, can everyone become a good leader according to you? If I wouldn't sincerely believe that leadership can be developed, I don't think I would be working uh, as a leadership professor in, in a business school. Um, but that's also because I distinguish leadership from management. Uh, I do agree that not everybody uh, can become a CEO. Uh, uh, maybe also not everybody wants to become a CEO. But for me, leadership and management are two very different things. I meet a lot of managers who are not leaders. Uh, 
But then I also see the opposite. I meet a lot of leaders who are not managers. Uh, and I, I really think that, that you can learn that. Uh, um, and it's again about asking yourself, and I think I come back to something I said earlier, it's asking yourself the question, what can I bring to the table? It's about taking responsibility and, uh, and sticking your neck out as well uh, when it comes to your values and when it comes to seeing I can have an impact. Uh, no matter how big or small the situation is, I can make a difference in that situation. For me, this is what leadership is, is really about. Myth number 12, before I take on a challenge, I need to make sure I'm competent. And one of the concepts that might sound very familiar for a lot of, of our listeners is the imposter syndrome. Marion, do you or did you suffer in the past from the imposter syndrome? Absolutely. And one of the reasons why I felt it was important to talk about it in the book is that so many people, you know, suffer from it and I, I hope we'll find consolation in realizing that many others do. So it's actually quite a normal part uh, of, you know, of doing new things or taking on new challenges or, or, or of growth, you know, it, it really is a sign that, that you are growing. For me, this was very much when I was in my early years as a, as a professor in, in the U.S., at the, you know, quite a well-known business school and teaching in front of MBA students who were um, actually older than I was. I, I wasn't even 30 when I started out. And so that really, for me, created this feeling like this cannot be right. I mean, this must be a mistake. Um, they, they hired this Belgian girl to teach marketing to Americans. I mean, they invented it here. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and I really, really felt like um, I was faking it. Uh, this was also, and for a long time, I carried this mantra of fake it till you make it, which I now know is not the best, is best, best advice. But for me, it was, it was my way of surviving. Um, but, uh, you know, to just fake like I knew what I was doing, but I also deep down felt like I was faking it. Like my colleagues, they actually had the expertise, they had the training, the background, they knew what they were doing and probably they don't, didn't have all of the doubts that I, that I had. And it was only later on that I realized that, you know, um, that feeling of I'm not up to the job and I'm just pretending and, and any day now somebody is going to realize that and say, huh. <laughs> but, so you felt uncertain. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and you know, and I was faking that I wasn't, um, which is also which is also part of it. <laughs> so there was a career of uh, an Hollywood actress lying ahead for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's part of imposter syndrome because somebody who suffers from imposter syndrome has this underlying fear of being found out. You know, being found out that you're, you know, that you're really just pretending to know what you are, what you are doing. And so you do anything that you can, you know, to not be found out, you know, to indeed fake it and to not acknowledge, um, you know, the, the, the doubts that, that, that you have. And um, that also is, you know, clearly a, a, a flip side of that, of that 
syndrome of that imposter syndrome is that in the effort to pretend and to fake that you know what you're doing, you know, you 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 omit to ask advice, you know, you you omit to, you know, to lean on other people that could actually help you. And so you, you know, there's a very important resource that could help you in 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 your challenge that you're not leveraging and that you're not that you're not using. And, and that's a tremendous pity. Yeah, but now you can cope with it. Now I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's a well-known fact that men apply for a job when they meet 60% of the qualifications, but women only apply when they are sure they meet all the requirements. That's a really nice quote from the book. But how does it come, Kathleen? Why are men more certain of themselves than women? And what can we do about it? I think it also has a lot to do with societal norms. Uh, uh, We do know that, uh, and I I see that also on a day-to-day basis, I have a boy and a girl, uh, um, and and I notice they do get very different messages. Uh, um, As a society, we do expect girls maybe to be that little bit uh, more perfect uh, when they're not tidy we see that as a much bigger problem than a boy that's not tidy yeah, because that's uh, maybe just a distracted uh, professor uh, so so i think societal norms of course are are the cause of that but I also think we, we uh, need to be careful about the solutions to that uh, because it is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I would expect uh, that people, before they step into a role, uh, that they do already have, of course, a, a certain degree of skill and that they're also aware of what they don't know yet. So there might be a problem sometimes of being overconfident as well. Eh? And, and that's also a study we we uh, we, uh, we cite is that why are there so many uh, incompetent men uh, in, in top uh, positions? Um, it has a bit uh, to do with that uh, because you might think I meet 100% of the uh, expectations, well, you actually only do 60. So I think both for men and women, it's important to have a very accurate self-image. And so I would say maybe we have some work to do when it comes to overconfidence. uh, But on the other hand, I also think we need to make clear uh, to everybody who suffers maybe from this imposter syndrome a bit, that you will never be 100% ready before you take a leap and before you take uh, a risk and that there's still a lot that you can learn while doing the job, uh, on the job. So the answer for me is not not as straightforward. Uh, There's the part of overconfidence and I think there's also a lot of uh, good news when it comes to be a bit humble and and accurate in your self-perception. Yeah, I think over time you come to realize that a certain level of you know, not knowing what you're doing entirely is is you know is part of any job, uh, and 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 that everybody um, you know uh, has that has that same experience. Yeah, and we call it also. Uh, we talk about the the Dunning Kruger effect, uh, uh, where very often people who are not good at something they actually think I'm really good at it. Uh, so people may be thinking, oh, I would be a much better politician uh, um, because they maybe don't know enough uh, about it. Uh, we see the same with car drivers. Uh, many people think they're an above average car driver, uh, which is of course not possible if you look at, uh, at the numbers. So for me, this, this is just again another call. Make sure you know very well where your 
strengths are, but also where your areas for development uh, are. Myth number 13, it's all strictly business. You can't think rationally if you're not emotional. Kathleen, can you explain that? Yeah, um, something, and, and this is really based on something I observe very frequently in uh, coachings, is that somehow people think yeah, emotions have no place in the workplace and they certainly should not influence my decisions. And so they say, yeah, I should not let emotions influence my decision-making process. My answer to that is emotions are data too. And I agree, it shouldn't be the only part of the data uh, that, that should impact your decisions, but it is an important part of your decision-making. Uh, um, today, we're going maybe to uh, a crisis. Uh, so that, per definition, brings emotions. And I would say, if you ignore that in your decision-making, uh, that there are emotions there, and, and if you don't acknowledge that, that might actually lead to some... Uh, pretty uh, terrible decisions. So their data, um, we shouldn't overestimate them, but we also shouldn't underestimate them. And my observation is that that somehow many people still think like, yeah, they, they should not influence my decision making. I can recognize that very much. And, you know, I like this insight of treat your emotions as data points. You know, don't ignore them, but, you know, uh, think about what is the information carried uh, in, this, in this emotion. I must confess that all of the major decisions I took in my life have been based on gut feeling, um, more than a rational, you know, uh, balancing the pros and cons. And, and uh, that insight, you know, of emotions carry data too, helps me to think about, because for a long time I thought, you know, that must be the wrong way to take decisions. I mean, who takes major life decisions based on a gut feeling? Um, but if you think about emotions as, as data points as well, you know, you actually must then say, well, your gut feeling carries a lot of information that maybe you're not able to make explicit or express or put into very specific terms, but that nevertheless is information you cannot ignore. Yeah, and it's a sign of, of strength, I would say, uh, to, to really also embrace that part of the data. And, and somehow we sometimes also think that people who, who do consider emotions, that they're weak. Uh, but then think about what, what Jacinda Ardern always says, is that it's not a sign of weakness uh, to, to be empathic or to, to use uh, emotions in your decision-making. Uh, it's actually a sign of strength. And if you don't use that part of the data, again, uh, you're really making very one-sided uh, decisions. One of the authors that I discovered last year was Brené Brown due to the book on Friday we have at Vleric. And she's mentioned as well in, in your book. Um, she's a vulnerability expert for those who don't know her. Um, what did you learn from her, Marion? Well, I actually discovered Brené Brown a couple of years ago uh, when I was able to um, uh, have a keynote speech, sit in, in a, on an event where she gave a, gave a keynote speech. Um, and so this is where I discovered some of her key insights and, and her research because she did a lot of research to back up um, her knowledge. And 
probably the, the, the biggest insight that I got from hearing her speak is this idea that um, courage and vulnerability are not two extremes at opposites of one another, but that actually courage and vulnerability are two sides of the same coin. Because the moment you do something courageous, whatever it is, you know, having a, a truthful, honest conversation with somebody, doing something which is entirely new to you, whatever it is that requires from you to be brave in one way or another, um, almost automatically with that courage and with the fact that you need to be brave will come a sentiment and a feeling of vulnerability. Um, and, and so in that sense, this allowed me to look at vulnerability also in a different way as not a sign of weakness. You know, if you feel vulnerable, you must be weak. That is, that is the standard way of thinking. But actually to say, well, this vulnerability goes in hand in hand, in fact, with the fact that I'm doing something brave and that, you know, actually I show courage in indeed not letting fear keeping me of having this honest conversation or doing this entirely new thing, uh, new thing for me. So that was, that for me, that was, and there's a lot of work that she did, many different insights, but for me, that was sort of enlightening and key um, in, in starting to think of courage and vulnerability as two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and it makes you more human. Showing well, your vulnerability. We, we are human anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we might as well yeah. acknowledge it. <laughs> but but uh, there's a, a weird paradox as well, huh? because um, when it comes to ourselves, we very often hate to be vulnerable. But then when we see someone else being vulnerable, we, we indeed have that reaction. Oh, it makes that person human. Uh, and we appreciate that person more. So it's, again, a, a mental limit that we sometimes put on ourselves. Like, oh, we need to be strong and thus not vulnerable. Uh, while actually it's something that people really appreciate. Myth number 14. Freelancers and entrepreneurs have easy flexible lives. And one question for the both of you, what do you think it takes to be a good entrepreneur according to you? Well, I would come back to uh, what I said earlier, leadership. Uh, uh, leadership in the sense of taking responsibility. Because uh, when you're an, uh, an entrepreneur or a freelancer, typically there is no uh, boss to blame uh, or no organization to blame. You can only watch, look in the mirror and say, well, maybe I, I made some uh, good or bad uh, decisions. Um, so, so for me, it's really about that. Um, it, and also, I think, um, overcoming the, the pitfall of assuming that because you're an, an entrepreneur or a freelancer that you're really completely free. We're never completely free. Uh, if you're a freelancer, uh, you have clients uh, and you might sometimes be on, on their schedules. Uh, as an entrepreneur, you might have a, a board of directors or uh, an advisory board. Uh, so, investors. Yeah, mm -hmm. investors. So you're never, ever completely free. Um, so you have indeed maybe a bit more degrees of freedom. Um, but actually, that also requires a lot of self-management uh, and, and uh taking there the responsibility to really um, take that, that, uh, that uh, freedom uh, seriously. I think that's a really important one for freelancers and entrepreneurs. Yeah, and what do you think, Marion? What does it take to be a good entrepreneur? Optimism. Yes? 
Noir. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because optimism is a is a is a driving force. If you don't really believe that there is an opportunity and that you will be able uh, to leverage that opportunity, you don't have that optimism. You will never act. You know. So in that sense, and I think those are the words of Simon Sinek. You know, optimism is a driver of progress. Um, uh, that is absolutely true, and that is what I recognize as well in entrepreneurs, that fundamental uh, underlying optimism uh, that they will be able to achieve what they, you know, what they set out to do, even when the prospects are uncertain and when the outcome is not 100% guaranteed and when there's risk involved, either financial risk or a personal risk that is, uh, that is involved in it. Optimism is a moral duty. Yeah, and I think it doesn't only apply to uh, entrepreneurs and freelancers. And and if there, uh, we we said we didn't want to write a recipe book, but I do think that this is an important one. Uh, this this moral duty of being optimistic. I do think this will help you through a lot of ups and downs in a, a career. Uh, uh, having this optimistic perspective and and feeling this having this yes yes I can attitude. I do think is is an important one. The last myth, myth number 15, one person cannot change the world. We don't need to be Bill Gates in order to have an impact on the world. What is the advice you both want to give to youngsters that want to see change in the world? For me, that would be, um, you know, very early on, especially in your career, you might be focused on the next career step and really thinking about how can I best manage my career. My advice would be really early on in your career, don't only think about how can I progress in my career, but think about what's the, the impact that I want to have, what's my ripple effect. Uh, and, and that will uh, open up so many more avenues for growth and development. Because if you're only focused on your career, in doing that, you might maybe even lose your moral compass. You might even uh, lose what really makes you happy. So I would say have a broad perspective on, on life and don't just manage your career and manage your life. Um, I thought very powerful advice coming from uh, Paul Belke in my conversation with him. Uh, Paul Belke, who is you know prior chairman, uh, now chairman of Nestle, and and before that the CEO of Nestle, and who and a Vlerik alumnus and a Vlerik alumnus indeed, uh, um, and, and so you know in on all aspects uh, one would say he had a he had a successful career, um, but when when I talked to him about indeed having impact and what that meant for him, he said you don't really need to search very far for it, or you don't need to look at the concept of impact as something very grand. You know, having impact is simply about the effect you have on the people close to you and the people around you. So it's it's the human lives that you touch in one way or another, in a big or a small way, that is, that is the impact that you have. And when you think of impact in that way, everybody has impact and everybody can have impact. Yeah, also Françoise Schombach, who won uh, an award uh, from her alumni. I think she, she has this very nice quote that, that really summarizes it well, I think. She says, well, a lot of people, uh, they, they want to do better and become better. Uh, and doing better is good. 
but doing good is even better. Uh, and what that good is, of course, you define it yourself, but, but it's basically about that, uh, doing good. And then the last but not least question, what is the ripple effect you want to achieve with this book? Well, I think the main reason why we wrote this book is to enable people to free themselves of some myths and stereotypes uh, about, you know, what it takes uh, in to make your way. And so if we have inspired anybody in a big or a small way to take the next leap forward, that makes it worthwhile um, for us. Um, and so in that sense, um, our, our mission is to, um, you know, for people to live up to their potential. And so that's also why, you know, we donate uh, royalties, our author royalties to the uh, Vleric uh, Scholarship Fund, so that also in a very direct way, this book will lead to giving uh, people opportunities and to live up to their potential. Yeah, and for you, Kathleen? I wanted to say the last bit. <laughs> so for, for me, the, the ripple effect is, well, the people reading this book, um, they typically have some form of privilege, a uh, privilege to buy a book, to uh, think about where they want to go with their uh, careers. But of course, not everybody has that privilege. Um, so the ripple effect for me goes much further than the book and the content messages we, we give there. It's indeed also about uh, us donating uh, the royalties, really realizing that uh, we are in the end very privileged and also realizing that others might not have that privilege and creating opportunities for them. I would say that that's for me certainly also a reason why I uh, wanted to write this book. All right, big thank you to both of you. I really liked reading the book myself and I'm really looking forward to the second book you're going to write together. And pay it forward though, that you liked the book. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Tell everyone you know. I will, I definitely know. will. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mathieu. All right. We hope you enjoyed listening to the three episodes of Making Your Way. This must-read book is published via Lano, and you can order a paper version or an ebook via your favorite bookshop. The revenue of the book sale will go to the Vleric Scholarship Fund. If you have questions or suggestions, mail us via podcast at vleric.com. Bye for now and stay tuned for some more book episodes and other Vleric podcasts in the near future.